If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy, and uh, California's done it again. We uh, talked a little bit yesterday about uh, the elimination of uh, fossil fuels by 2045, so dictated by Governor Moonbeam, yeah. Yeah, wouldn't want to pay the electricity bills in California, although I wouldn't want to pay the property taxes in Illinois either, but I do. And then they've got this. Here's uh, one of the places identity politics ends, or I shouldn't say ends, uh, consumes. Legislation uh, passed by uh, the California State Senate last month and the Assembly requires uh, companies to appoint one woman to their boards of directors by the end of 2019. By the end of 2021, a five-member board would need to have two women, while boards with six what? or more directors would need three. See, that's what's wrong. No, world. You, what's wrong? No, we, I, we should I, earn it. Well, oh, I thought you were getting to what's wrong is the obvious thing. What do you mean by woman, Dan? I'm, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because the uh, legislature in California... American wisdom defined that for us. Female is an individual who self-identifies her gender as a woman without regard to the individual's designated sex at birth. So, of course, they've got that ground covered. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, genders are popping up everywhere. That's cr- on the board of directors. Yeah. Uh, that's gonna be, that's got to be music to the ears of uh, the uh, Mountain View Mafia. Well, I'm sure they love the government dictating to them uh, the composition of their boards of directors. For more on uh, this topic and so many more, we're pleased to be joined by Ramesh Panaru, who, of course, is a columnist for Bloomberg View as well as senior editor for National Review. Ramesh, before we get into uh, the week that was for Judge Kavanaugh, how about uh, that development in California, this innovation? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, of course it happened in California. And um, it is an attempt to um, uh, not just affect California residents, but really um, to transform American business. Uh, and you've got to wonder whether it's going to survive a legal challenge for that reason. Yeah, but it doesn't say, I mean, you force people to use a certain source of energy. Is that, I mean, doesn't that seem illegal? Well, I mean, I think the key question would be whether the state is sort of, you know, is is basically transgressing on federalism um, because it's taking, you know, it's trying to basically set a national policy. Uh, you know, conservatives, we tend to think of federalism as something that the federal government um, interferes with and tramples on the states. But it's equally bad when the states try to do something as though they're the federal government. Well, there you go. Quotas, energy policy, these are all matters that could be taken up by the high court in some form or fashion, depending on what actually makes its way into law. And uh, so the uh, the Kavanaugh hearings last week, uh, concluding with the witness testimony, your takeaway in terms of uh, how Brett Kavanaugh stood up and his likelihood of confirmation. Well, I think he did exceptionally well. I think he was unflappable in uh, circumstances that would have been difficult for most people, um, the circus-like atmosphere at the beginning and then the nasty personal attacks that increasingly dominated the Democratic questioning, um, none of it really 
threw him off his stride. There were one or two times where he seemed not to understand what the Democrats were trying to get at, but that I think was understandable because some of what they were doing was so was so strange. Um, I think that the, the, he is on track to confirmation, and I think that the fact the Democrats were reduced to um, coming up with these kind of ridiculous character-based attacks on Kavanaugh uh, is a sign of the desperation that they have over his nomination. Not to mention references to Kirk Douglas movies. That's sort of the last act of a desperate man, isn't it? Senator Cory Booker, I, I really think, you know, I'm not a Democratic presidential primary voter, so I'm not going to say uh, how this is playing with his intended audience. Um, but for everybody else, it sure seems as though Senator the clown himself um, by, by pulling this ridiculous stunt uh, and, you know, pretending that he was act, he was some sort of hero Mm -hmm. in disclosing classified information which turned out not to be particularly important Mm -hmm. or classified um (laughs) but uh you know if if that's the kind of theater that uh, the democratic primary voters respond to i guess it will have been worth it for him well do you think it's time to end these confirmation hearings i mean they turn into a circus show they had what almost 90 people arrested during the kavanaugh hearing we didn't have Supreme Court confirmation hearings for most of U.S. history. And, uh, you know, it may be that there was a time and a place where it made sense. And um, under today's extreme partisanship, it doesn't. Um, there have, there were some exchanges that made sense and that were interesting and enlightening. I think Senator Cruz and Senator Lee and Senator Sass on the Republican side did a very good job of asking questions. And I think that even on the Democratic side, the ones who weren't running for president, um, Senator Coons of Delaware and Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota, who I don't think is running for president, although you sometimes hear talk about that. Um, I think they did a creditable job, uh, but uh, but the, the, the circus and the innuendo um, were, were real black marks on the Senate. Uh, speaking of uh, those senators and zeroing in on Ben Sass. Uh, what was your reaction to uh, his remark over the weekend that, you know, he thinks about leaving the Republican Party and just being unaffiliated as United States senator every day uh, because of the um, reality TV show that is the Trump administration and the melodrama associated with Trump's uh, inner sanctum, if you will? Uh, is that um, is that wise uh, for SASS? Uh, does that uh, a signal of frustration within Republican ranks that will negatively translate in the midterms? Uh, well, I think that um, the frustration that uh, Senator Sass feels is, uh, is widely shared among his colleagues. Um, I, uh, I am generally an admirer of the senator. Uh, and it's certainly true that there are other voters in that same boat. So, you know, there, there do seem to have been some um, some departures uh, from the Republican Party in the population at large over the last few years. Um, that said, I think that either you do it or you don't, um, but there's no point in making a big public display about agonizing over it. Well, and, and the interesting thing, too, is even those that have expressed frustration with Trump previously have had sort of uh, uh, hot and cold relationships with him. 
It's interesting to see how some of them have come around. I mean, I, I, I can't help but immediately think of Lindsey Graham, and even with how close he was to McCain, Lindsey Graham has been stalwart uh, for Trump with respect to an investigation that he gave a lot of latitude to, which is the Mueller investigation, and um, talking even uh, this uh, past weekend about uh, this anonymous op-ed emanating from the Trump administration within it, allegedly, is uh, indicative of how little uh, they have, the left and Mueller, on, as to, in terms of evidence of Russian collusion and, and any substantive outcome from this investigation. So it's just really interesting to see somebody like Lindsey yeah. Graham running interference for Trump when others like Sass are not. Yeah, well, and Graham has gone so far as to suggest that um, he would be open to replacing Jeff Sessions as attorney general so that um, yeah. Trump could have yeah. a, okay. an AG that he has confidence in. And, and Graham speaks for a lot of Republicans, too. I mean, there are a lot of Republicans who have uh, found their estimation of President Trump increasing over the last several years and whose reservations have melted away over that time. Your reaction to President Obama taking credit for uh, the uh, ec- economy's performance under President Trump when he uh, spoke <laughs> at U of I last week? So I think that, um, you know, I, I go back to the, the old-fashioned conservative view that we tend to exaggerate the role of presidents in um, determining the performance of the economy. Um, so it's I don't think that it's all to Obama's credit, but I also don't think it's all to Trump's credit. I think that, um, you know, we have a great big economy with scores of millions of private economic actors, and politicians tend to overestimate their own importance in all of it. That said, I do think that there are a couple of things that President Trump has done with congressional Republicans um, that are going to exert, that have exerted and are going to continue to exert a positive influence on the economy. I think on balance, the tax cut is a positive for the economy. Uh, I wish it weren't quite as much deficit financed as it is. Uh, The deregulation uh, and the regulatory restraints in general um, should also be expected to uh, raise the level of economic activity over the years. So I think that the president has legitimate bragging rights. And then, you know, at the end of the day, Regardless of the merits of this and the political back and forth, if you've got a good economy, the president and his party tend to get credit for it politically. He is Ramesh Panaru, columnist for Bloomberg View, senior editor for National Review. Ramesh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey 